Well, it is uh, truly a, um, a delight to me to be back here in, in the pulpit, back with you, uh, the people of God at, at Grace Bible Fellowship. We, Chris and I, love you dearly, and uh, we uh, are thankful to the Lord for you as our church family. Now, while we were away, we had some brave men for whom I'm very thankful who, who led us in a little mini-series through the Psalms, and they did excellently. And I want to thank each one of them for their, just their ministry to, to you in the name of, of the Lord. Uh, but this morning, we are going straight back to the Gospel of Matthew uh, to pick up our study of this Gospel. And Matthew wrote his gospel really to present the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the long-awaited King, the coming one, the expectant one. And he wanted his readers to hear that, read that, and believe. Um, and uh, just... just uh, in our time in South Africa, I had a, a number of opportunities to, to just share the gospel. And, and really, you are met with three responses. One is faith, the other one is doubt, and the third one is unbelief. Uh, and even this morning, coming back, we will see in our passage, uh, which is Matthew 11, uh, again, uh, dealing with, with doubt. But... Matthew has presented Jesus as the Messiah, uh, and uh, we've seen this. He has presented some, some affirmation, some evidence, some proof that Jesus is the one whom the Scriptures uh, spoke about, uh, who, who was prophesied to come. And we saw some legal affirmations in chapter 1 where we see his genealogy, that it, was, it really emphasizes the, the kingly line, that he is uh, in the line of David. We saw uh, his name that was given by the angel, that he would be Jesus, the Savior, um, Emmanuel, God with us. Um, we saw even his position as king acknowledged by the king makers of the east, the wise men who traveled and, and, and uh, worshipped him. Then we saw uh, prophetic affirmations in chapter chapter 2, end of chapter 1, chapter 2. We talked about uh, his virgin birth as prophesied in Isaiah 7.14. The place of his birth, Bethlehem, that he would be called out of Egypt, Hosea 11.1. Uh, his designation that he would be called a Nazarene, meaning that he would be despised and rejected. Uh, and even his forerunner, John the Baptist, prepared the way for the Lord, according to Isaiah 43. And all of these prophetic utterances made hundreds of years before his coming came to fulfillment. And not only that, there are over 300 prophecies about Christ and his first coming that was fulfilled by Jesus in his life on, on earth. <clears throat> and uh, uh, John Blanchard, in his little book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up, uh, calls him the one man in 60 billion. Now, that's not a statistical uh, uh, expression. It is saying that uh, he is the only one in 60 billion people, which he has calculated the number of people who have ever lived on the earth to fulfill all of these prophecies. So he is the one. He is the expected one. In chapter 3, we saw uh, some of some... Uh, 
or rather, yeah, some divine affirmations at his baptism, when John the Baptist uh, baptized him and, and the Spirit of, of the Lord descended upon him. Uh, we saw some spiritual affirmations in him overcoming temptation, succeeding where, where Adam has failed. Um, we saw theological affirmations in chapters 5 to 7 where he was teaching about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that is near, the kingdom that is at hand, the kingdom, uh, and, and basically expound on the kingdom righteousness that is required for, for life in the kingdom. Um, and then we saw in chapters 8 to 9 some supernatural affirmations where Matthew recorded a number of miracles for us, divine uh, or miraculous healings and, and the calming of the storm and, and driving out demons, all of which Matthew seeks to persuade his readers, us, to believe. And now coming in chapters 11 and 12, we see that some obviously believed, uh, others doubted, and still others continued in their unbelief. Um, John the Baptist we have as one who for a moment doubted whether Jesus was in fact um, the Messiah, the chosen one. And of course we see later in that chapter the unbelief of the crowds and the cities where Jesus performed many of his miracles. And in chapter 12, really the hostility and opposition of the religious leaders come to the front in which they were seeking or conspiring to destroy him and really uh, attributed the power of his miracle working to uh, not the Spirit of God, but to Beelzebul, the ruler of, of demons. And so some had faith, some doubted, and others continued in their unbelief. Now, faith, as the Scripture uh, defines it, is um, really the assurance. That means the, the certainty, the confidence uh, of things hoped for, and the conviction, that is the evidence, the proof of things not seen, taken from Hebrews 11.1. 1. So, so faith is the belief that something is true. Um, it is more than a mere opinion. Sometimes we would say, listen, I believe that the housing market is going to stay the same. Well, that is an opinion. That's that, but we use that word belief in that way. Um, and, and, and also faith is more than hoping something is true. Faith, in fact, is knowing something is true. It is being convinced. It's being convicted that something is true. And therefore, we are willing to put our trust in it. Now, all people have faith. Uh, all people have faith because they place their faith in all kinds of things. People place their faith in, in uh, material things. People place their faith in certain uh, people and, or communities, maybe in, in personal status or, or uh, accomplishments. Uh, they place their faith in traditions, ideals, and goals, even in a transcendent being or power. But faith in God, faith in Christ, is a gift of God. It is God enabling a person to use this ability to, to trust something, uh, to quicken that, and, and enable a person at the hearing of the gospel, at the understanding of who Christ is, uh, what he came to do, why he came to do it, 
is, is to entrust ourselves to that, to believe that, to accept that, to be convinced of it, that that is true to the point of putting our trust in it so that we would no longer try to save ourselves through good works, but to trust in the completed work of Christ. So faith is knowing Christ to be true. It is to be assured of what is hoped for, to be convicted of what is not seen. Doubt, on the other hand, is being uncertain. It is being unconvinced, being really in two minds. Uh, it is hearing the facts, hearing the claims of faith, but we still remain to be persuaded. And the Bible speaks negatively about doubt. Yet God seems to tolerate doubt to a degree. Because doubt is not a settled position. The one who doubts has not been fully convinced either way really. Uh, but it is when doubt persists that it reveals itself as unbelief. And unbelief, unlike doubt, is a settled position. It is uh, hearing the facts of the Word of God, of the Gospel. It is evaluating the claims of Christ and then come to a settled conclusion that that is not true. And so in that sense, unbelief is really faith. But faith in the fact that these truths are not true. Um, and God has little to no tolerance for unbelief because unbelief makes God out to be a liar. Now, throughout the scriptures, we see the doubt in the, in the great people of the Bible. Of course, doubt was used by Satan to tempt Adam and Eve, um, resulting in the fall. Uh, Abraham, the father of faith, he doubted God's provision and protection when he traveled to Egypt during the famine. And actually uh, said his wife was his sister. He lied in order to protect himself. Moses doubted God when God commanded him to speak to the rock so that water would come forth for the people. And he, in that moment, hit the rock. Uh, still water came out, but that was doubting God's word. And it cost him entrance into the promised land. Job doubted God's goodness and fairness during his suffering. Uh, David doubted God when he, when he uh, commanded a census to be taken to see how big the uh, Israelite army would be instead of trusting in the Lord. Uh, we see that Peter doubted Jesus when he was walking on the water. One moment he was walking and the next moment he sank because he doubted. Uh, Thomas Doubted the resurrection. He said that unless I see his hands and the imprint of the nails and I put my fingers in the place of the nails and I put my hand in his eyes, I will not believe. And the Lord tolerated these moments of doubt in these men and women of faith uh, until they could come to full assurance, a complete and, and utter convince position that God is true and his word is true and can be trusted. And so this morning we come to another great man in the scriptures, John the Baptist, uh, whom Jesus called a prophet and uh, the greatest among those born of a woman. In it, and later on in this chapter 11, verse 9 to 
um, 11. And so John the Baptist doubted. He was unsure for a moment if Jesus was the Christ, if Jesus was the king, the expected one, the literally the, the coming one. And today, from the doubts of John in our passage, uh, we really find a blueprint for dealing with doubt. A blueprint that we can apply to ourselves and our own lives as we struggle with doubt, but also in the lives of others who may be doubting the claims of Christ, the truth of the gospel, the word of God. Um, and so we'll basically explore this under two questions, what uh, to believe and what to do with doubt. And so if you're not there already, please turn to, you, to Matthew chapter 11 and we'll just read the first six verses. Matthew 11, verse 1. And when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word to his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John, what you hear and see, the blind receive sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Let me pray for us before we continue. Uh, Father, we, we thank you for the ministry of your word, the ministry of your Spirit, applying the life-giving word to our lives, Lord, that we would know, Lord, that we would be convinced, Lord, that we would be convicted, and Lord, that we would entrust ourselves to the truth of your word. So help us this morning, Lord, not to doubt, but to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. And so first of all, what to believe. Verse 1 reads, And when Jesus had finished giving instruction to his twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And, and this is really a great uh, a transition. A verse uh, serves as a transition between the commission that we've seen Jesus gave his twelve disciples uh, in the ministry that, that they had to fulfill in chapter 10. Uh, and now in chapter 11, we see some responses to Jesus' ministry. Uh, but this verse reminds us that Jesus came really to call uh, Israel to faith. Uh, faith in the kingdom of heaven. Faith in the fact that the kingdom is at hand. That faith in Christ. Faith that Jesus is the king. That he is the Messiah. And this is still the call of Christ to us today, that we are called to believe. We are called to put our faith in Christ, to put our hope in Him, to put our trust in Him, in His person and in His teaching, His preaching and His instructions. And so the first word here we have is after giving instructions. And of course, these instructions refer to the instructions of the previous chapter, chapter 10. 
And so maybe if you just let your eyes uh, go back to chapter 10, verses 5 to 15, and, and uh, I'll just uh, run us through what we have uh, studied over the last weeks or months. Um, and we see in chapter 5 to 15 that uh, Jesus instructing them on how they should minister, that they should, their ministry should be Christ-directed, it should be Christ-dominated, they should preach Him, they should be Christ-dependent, they should trust on Him for their provision, and that it should be Christ-driven. It would be determined by the response of those who hear the gospel. If they receive it, then you stay. If they don't, then you move to another town. Verses 16 to 23, what they should expect in ministry, that they can expect problems, that Jesus are, 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 are they would, they are to act like, like gentle as doves and, and shrewd as serpents. They can expect problems, um, that there would be prejudice and persecution against them, but that they need to persevere. Uh, because God sees and knows and cares for them. Also, uh, verses uh, uh, 24 to 42, we see how they should uh, be as, as minister, what they should be like as, as disciples. Uh, they should be followers of Him, uh, faithfully imitating His ways and His word and fearlessly following Him. Uh, they should be confessors of Christ, to confess Him candidly, courageously, and conclusively. And finally, that they should represent Him. And as a disciple, we always represent Christ wherever we go. And some who, who receives us as, as, uh, as prophets or as, as righteous men will receive uh, reward in kind. Uh, but even the smallest act that is done to those who represent Christ will by no means lose their reward. And so these instructions were given specifically to the 12 disciples. But of course, they also translate to us. There are principles here that translates to us that we need to follow him, confess him, represent him uh, as, as his Disciples, and and so we see in the in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew uh, Matthew twenty eight twenty that uh, he was sending these disciples out, uh, commanding them to baptize them in in to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them all to teach them to observe all that he had commanded. Them. That includes chapter 10. That includes all the instructions that Jesus have given and also what he will preach and teach. Uh, he's teaching and preaching. Of course, teaching and preaching is, is very similar. Teaching is really expounding more, uh, giving information, explaining the text and preaching is, is really, uh, an exhortation. It is a call to act. Uh, it's a declaration of the truth. Um, and so Jesus went about teaching and preaching the gospel uh, of the kingdom, uh, the good news of the kingdom, uh, that the kingdom is at hand, uh, that uh, uh, he preached the righteousness of the kingdom in chapters 5 to, to 7. And also that he was speaking the very word of God. We see in John seventeen eight, uh, Jesus in his high priestly prayer prayed this to the Father. He says, for the words which you gave me, uh, I have given to them. So the words of Jesus is the words of God. 
And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. And so Jesus taught and he preached so that people would believe, that they would place their faith in him, and that they would therefore obey the word of God. He wanted them to hear and live by the word of God. He wanted them to build their lives on the rock who is Christ, but also the rock of his, of his word, uh, as the wise builder uh, did in, in Matthew 7 verse 24. And he wants us to believe, to have faith in him, to have faith in his word, in his promises, his warnings, his exhortations, his instructions, so that we would put his, our trust in him. And in his word, that we would place our hope in him. And we know that we have faith in him when we obey him. We know that we have faith in him when we do what he says, what he commands us to do, what he instructs us to do. But you know, sometimes... We doubt. We have all experienced, I think, moments when we are not convinced, when we question the Lord and His Word. Sometimes our circumstances, our experiences seems to be different, contrary to what the Word of God says. Sometimes our minds, our reasonings, come to different conclusions to what God says. And so we are tempted to doubt God, to doubt His Word, doubt His wisdom, doubt His goodness, His sovereignty, His love, His righteousness, His justness, His providential care. And really doubt is displayed in disobedience. And persistent doubt is, of course, unbelief. And unbelief results in a rejection, an opposition, and hostility against the truth. The reasons why we don't obey God or His Word is because we doubt it. We are unconvinced it is the right thing or the best thing for us to do in that moment. And so we are unwilling to trust Him. Did God really say? Did He really mean that? Is that meant for today? And as I said, when doubt persists, it settles into unbelief. Unless God intervenes. Unless God intervenes, we will say, I don't believe, I don't trust, I think, I know better. And that is regarding everything that the scriptures teach. Regarding salvation, regarding sanctification, the exclusivity of the cross, the importance of holiness. It's the truth about creation, about marriage, about sexuality. Parenting, the church, worship, work, and we can go on and on and on. Every temptation we face 
utilizes doubt. It is packaged in doubt. Did God really say? Did he say it? Did he, does he expect it of me, of us? Perhaps God is keeping something good from us. Exactly the, the tactic that was used by the serpent in Genesis 3. And now we come here in verses 2 and 3 of our passage. And we see the prophet's doubt. He doubted if Jesus was in fact the Messiah, the Christ, the expected one. And as I said, his doubt and how Jesus dealt with it is a blueprint for us in times of our own doubt. And so what do we do with doubt? Verse 2 says, And when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? John, for this time, doubted if Jesus was in fact the Christ, the expected one. Now, some contend and say that John was, was not doubting, uh, given the fact of how highly Jesus was speaking of him just a few verses later in verses 7 to 15, uh, and that he really asked that question on behalf of his disciples to help them. But the text is pretty clear that the question was John's. Uh, John wanted to know. And he sent his disciples. And you see, so John, as great a man as he was, he was still human. He was still born of a woman. And he too had to receive Christ by faith. Now, there are lessons for us to learn from John's doubting. As in, why or when are we more likely to doubt? What should we do when we doubt? And how will our doubts be allayed? How will our doubts be taken away? And so let's look at the first one. Understand when we are more likely to doubt. And I think there are three uh, possible contributing factors that we can draw out from uh, our passage and from the life of John. And the first one, we read that he was... In prison, John was excluded. He was isolated. He was, of course, placed in prison or thrown into prison for preaching against the immorality of Herod and his brother's wife, Herodias. And the, according to the uh, Jewish historian Josephus, he was incarcerated in a, in a fortress, Macarius, which is about five miles east of the, of the Dead Sea one of Herod's play, uh, old palaces, which would explain why, uh, when, explain the passage dealing with John's execution after um, Herodias' daughter um, pleased Herod and he made a reckless promise before his guests, resulting in the execution of John. But John was excluded. He was isolated. He was cut off from what was happening. He still had contact through his disciples, which visited him and reported to him. Uh, but he was sidelined. 
He was uninvolved. And that must have been crushing to him. He was the one who prepared the way for Jesus. He was the one who identified him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the one who baptized Jesus. Now, he's excluded. He's isolated. Excluded from the ministry of Jesus. And that would have been pretty deflating and demoralizing, I think. Isolation, uninvolvement are fertile grounds for doubt to sprout. Why? Because you lose perspective. All you have are the confounds and limitations of your own thoughts and interpretations. And the Lord in His wisdom really counters this human weakness by giving us each other, the church. And yet many see attendance, church attendance, church involvement, the regular coming together in groups, in small groups, as unimportant, unnecessary, inconvenient. And they wonder why they their life of faith is stagnant. They wonder why they sometimes doubt the Word of God. They wonder why disobedience is more prevalent than before. I've used this illustration before of of D.L. Moody uh, with a man who came to him about the importance of meeting together as 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 Christians and they were sitting in front of an open fire in the hearth and Moody took out a a red hot coal and placed it to the side as they were continuing to, to converse and after a while the fire in the hearth was still red hot, warm and bright and the coal on the side was gray and cold, void of light and heat. When we are isolated, when we are uninvolved, then we are more likely to be tempted to doubt. We as humans, we need fellowship with others. We need to be involved in the common life of faith, in the ministry of Christ through the members of His people, His church, the shared practices of a life of faith, like worship, like word, prayer. These are really the, what is, what is uh, one author, Craig Dykstra, calls the, the habitations of the Spirit. I love that description. It's, 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 it's in here. It's while we are here. These, this is where, and when we worship the Lord, when we together hear the preaching of the word, together we are praying. It's when we together are, are, are caring for one another, uh, loving one another, being hospitable to one another. That is where the Spirit of God is most at work among us, in us. And but when we exclude ourselves, when we are isolated, when we are separated, that is fertile soil in which doubt 
sprouts and flourishes. And so the first thing is we see that why do we sometimes doubt? It's because of being excluded, being isolated. Secondly is exhaustion. Uh, it could be physical or mental exhaustion. Or it could be that John was, was just emotionally drained uh, from his own ministry. Uh, John had an intense ministry. Uh, he had a ministry of calling sinners to repentance. And no one was safe. Uh, from Roman soldiers to tax collectors to the children of Abraham to the religious leaders. He called them all, you brood of vipers. Uh, we go and, go and read Luke 3, verse 1 to 6, 14 again. And, and so having a confrontive or confronting ministry is draining. It is exhausting uh, emotionally. Um, because he was opposed by the leaders. He was not popular. He wanted, they wanted to know who he was and, and who gave him the right to baptize others. And we read in John 1, 19-27, and, and then later on in verse 11, we read that Jesus remarked that John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say they would be those in opposition. He has a demon. So John's ministry was hard, was difficult. And John the Baptist, both his person and his ministry, resembled that of Elijah. And we'll see later on that um, John was the Elijah who is to come. Uh, but likewise, Elijah was overwhelmed by the demands of his ministry when he was man alone standing up against the prophets of Baal and overcome them mightily through the work of God, only to run when Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, threatened his life and he was deflated, he was demoralized, he was depressed. And so when you have been involved in an intense period of ministry or spiritual activity, it can be emotionally draining, it can be exhausting. And when we are tired, when we are exhausted, when we are emotionally drained, we are more susceptible to succumb to doubts. Uh, many a preacher, after ascending the heights and the lights of preaching the Word of God on Sunday, descends into the valley of despair and, and doubt uh, in the face of their own failings and inadequacies and uh, seemingly indifference to the Word of God on Monday mornings. Uh, exhaustion, mentally, physically, emotionally, are fertile grounds for doubt to sprout. And so, exclusion, exhaustion, and the third one is expectation. Unfulfilled expectation. Unrealized hopes. And I think this is probably the main reason why John doubted. Because John was the one who announced the coming king. That Jesus is the one. He is coming and he, his ministry would be a ministry of judgment. We read in Matthew 3.12, His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John prepared the people, come, 
Repent. Why? Because the one is coming who is going to come and judge everyone. And so be prepared. And now in prison, all he hears about is Jesus and his ministry of mercy, his ministry of compassion. He heard of his teaching and his preaching. He heard of his healings and his miracles. But where is the judgment? Was John's question. D.A. Carson's wrote, It was all right to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, still storms, preach righteousness, and announce the kingdom. But where was the judgment? Had the corruptions and cruelties of Caesar been abruptly shut down? Had the hypocritical leaders, temple leaders, been banished? Had the disgusting corruptions of Herod Antipas been confronted? Why was he, John the Baptist, languishing and in stifling heat of a prison at Macarius Fortress for challenging the morals of Herod, while Jesus, the alleged Messiah, did nothing about this injustice? I think that's why he doubted. Why? Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are going to judge the world, and, and here I'm sitting in jail. And you know what? To this day, many a Jew would not accept Jesus as Messiah. Why? Because they look around them and they see, look at all the injustices. Look at all the unrighteousness. And they say, well, Jesus could not be the Messiah because when the Messiah comes, he would establish justice and righteousness and peace in this world. So we don't see that. So Jesus cannot be Christ. And many a Gentile likewise doubt Jesus to be the Christ because of the evil that is in this world. I've heard so many times this past few weeks that people just cannot get over the fact that Jesus would allow or God would allow Things to go on as it's going. And they can't see that he first came to show mercy, to show grace, to save. But they wonder, where is the justice? Where is righteousness? Where is God in all of this? And so exclusion, exhaustion, unfulfilled expectations, all could be reasons why John doubted and certainly why we are tempted to doubt. But what shall we do when doubt comes? What shall we do with our doubts? Well, what did John do? What did did John do? He turned to Jesus. He went to Christ. He said, because he could not go personally, he's his own disciples and said, go, go and ask, what is going on? Are you the expected one? Literally, are you the coming one? Or shall we look for someone else? Shall we look for another one? Perhaps John was thinking Jesus was another forerunner 
for Messiah. But what an incredible question. Uh, so may may divert a little bit here, but just are you the expected one? And ever since the fall, the world has been waiting for the expected one that God announced will come to redeem what has been lost at the fall. The head crusher of Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And so are you the head crusher? Is John's question. Are you the hope of Abraham? The seed through whom all families on earth would be blessed in Genesis 12.3. Are you Shiloh? whom Judah prophesied about the ruler that will come from, uh, sorry, Jacob prophesied that the ruler would come from Judah and all people will be obedient to him, Genesis 49.10. Are you the star coming from Judah who will crush his enemies and have dominion over them all that God revealed through the pagan prophet Balaam in Numbers 24? Are you the prophet like Moses? Whom God will raise to speak his word to his people. Deuteronomy 18. Are you the king whom the Lord God himself will install on Zion? In Psalm 2 verse 6. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Are you that one? Are you the king priest of Psalm 110? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. The Lord will stretch forth his strong scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. And then later on he goes, the Lord sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Are you the righteous branch of David that Jeremiah spoke of who will act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land? Are you the shepherd of God who will feed God's flock and be a prince among his people, Ezekiel 34? Are you the child of the sign, the one born of a virgin? Are you Emmanuel, Isaiah 7, 14? Are you the child born to us? Are you the son given to us whose name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace? There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Isaiah 9, are you the servant of God who will come 
Are you the spirit-empowered servant of Isaiah 42? Are you the light-giving servant who will restore Israel and be a light to the nations, Isaiah 49? Are you the disciple-making servant of Isaiah 50? Are you the suffering servant redeeming God's people from their sin, Isaiah 53? What a question. And people, the answer is, Yes, he is the one. He is the king. And John doubted Jesus to be the Christ. But in just instead of just dismissing Jesus, instead of turning to others, turning to the corrupt religious leaders of their day, he turned to Christ. He went to him to ask him. Are you the one? He asked in faith while doubting. He asked believing while doubting. Like the father of the demon possessed the boy who, who brought him to Jesus for healing. And he exclaimed, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And people, when we doubt, turn to Christ. Turn to Jesus. Don't go read more books and listen to others who sows further doubt in your mind. Turn to Christ. Turn to the Word of God. Turn to those who will point you to Christ. Because we cannot make you believe. I cannot make you believe. I can merely point you to him, I can point you to his word. Only the Lord, through his spirit, can give you the assurance of your salvation. The assurance that his word is true. That you can trust him completely. And how will our doubts be allayed? How was John's doubts allayed? How did Jesus counsel him? How was his fears relieved? His anxieties and his doubts quieted? Well, he ministered to him with the word of God. The living, life-giving, faith-producing, active and powerful word of God. Jesus did not condemn him for his doubts. For John's doubts were not unbelief. John did not decide that Jesus was not the Messiah. Like the religious leaders did, as we will see later on. Now John was in two minds for this, for this period. He was doubting. He was between the place of faith and unbelief. And as I said, doubt is common to all of us. Because we don't always see the full picture. Our minds are clouded by our physical limitations and circumstances, as mentioned before. Exclusion, exhaustion, uh, unfulfilled expectations. And so Jesus lovingly ministered to him. We read in verse 4, Jesus answered and said to him, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, 
and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Report to John what you are hearing and what you are seeing. And then he presented his ministries, act of ministries, but cleverly in a way that it would remind John of the prophecies that spoke that the Messiah would do these very things. Prophecy like Isaiah 35, verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. Also, possibly an allusion to Isaiah 26 verse 19. You, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Isaiah twenty-eight eighteen. On that day the death will hear words of the book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see, and the afflicted also will increase their gladness in the Lord, and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. But probably most significantly is Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. All passages that describes the ministry of mercy of the Messiah. And interesting, all of those passages goes on to also mention the ministry of judgment that the Messiah would have. The very thing that John proclaimed and the very thing that John was waiting for. But Jesus was so showing him that before judgment comes mercy, comes grace. Before he comes to execute his judgment, he comes to save. Are you not glad about that? We see this actually very pointedly in Jesus. When he began his ministry in, in the synagogue in, in Nazareth, he read Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. But he pointedly stopped reading exactly before the words and the day of vengeance of our God. So he would read to, pro to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he stopped. And that verse goes on. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And Jesus' ministry of judgment awaits his second coming. Uh, and John did not know that, did not realize that. But with his words, Jesus was pointing John back to the word of God showed him his expectations are right, but also wrong. Uh, Christ is coming to execute just, 
just judgment. But first he came to save people. And so he ministered to John from his word, from his life. Look at what I'm doing and his word. And then he goes on and he exhorts him. Blessed, verse 6, is he who does not take offense at me. Blessed, most fortunate, most happy, most privileged is the one whose doubt is turned to faith. Whose doubt do not cause them to stumble into unbelief. Blessed is the one who do, does not persist in asking for a sign before they would believe. Blessed are those who do not dismiss the word of God, the preaching of the gospel as foolishness. And today, we should remember that when doubt assails us, not to withdraw, not to stay away, away from the Lord and away from His people, away from His Word. These are the very means of grace God uses to instill in us, to grow our faith in Him and His Word. It is as we come together that we see the work of Christ in the lives of others around us, our fellow Christians, made new and being renewed day by day as the Spirit of God works on us. And we walk by faith. And we see that. And it encourages us. I can see how the Lord has changed you. I can see that you were blind, but now you see. I can see that you were deaf, but now you hear. I can see you were once dead, but now you are alive. It is the coming together as a church with fellow believers. That's when we are strengthened in our faith and where our doubts are quelled. That's where we see faith in action in others. As we study the Word of God, the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, corporately in community and not in isolation. I mean, these Christian practices as I said, are the means of grace for us to grow in faith. When we come to worship together, when we come to listen to the teaching and preaching together, when we pray together, when we confess our sins to one another, when we bear with each other, when we forgive each other, when we show hospitality to one another, when we care for each other, when we suffer together, sharing the, the hurts and the heartache, but also the joy and the blessings which we have and receive. These are the means of grace, the, the means God used to impart grace to us. The practices that are the habitation of the Holy Spirit. And so let us remember that we are called to walk by faith. 
Faith in Christ and faith in his word. To live by faith means to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But also remember that we are susceptible to doubt when we are excluded from fellowship, when we may be exhausted physically and emotionally, or when we have unfulfilled expectations, when things are not going the way we expected it to go or want it to go. And during those times, let us, like John the Baptist, turn to Christ. Turn to the only one, the expected one, and allow him to minister to us through his ministry in and through the lives of his people, through the preaching and teaching of his word, through the study of his word, not in isolation, but together, sharing what the Lord has taught us and exhorting others to faith in the truth of his person and of his word. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, Lord, that you are gentle, that you are patient, that you are gracious. Lord, you know our frame, that we are but dust. Lord, and because of the limitations of our being, Lord, we don't see the whole picture. We interpret our experiences so often in a way that causes us to doubt you. Oh Lord, forgive us for that. And forgive us when we, in our doubt, don't turn to you. Help us, Lord, to turn to you. Help us to look to you. Help us to come to you. Lord, your promise is that all who comes to you who are weary and heavy laden, you would give rest to their souls. And Lord, thank you that we know that when we doubt that you do not condemn us, but that you will point us back to yourself and back to the Word of God. So help us believe, Lord, as we walk by faith each day. In Jesus' name, amen.